Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, it's Manveen. Today's episode is presented by my colleague Edward Drummond, and it looks at the legacy of the London Olympics a decade on. Investment had poured into Stratford in the run-up to the Games, but how much of the benefit of that is still being felt? It was a moment many thought could change a corner of London forever. The International Olympic Committee has the honour of announcing that the Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012 are awarded to the city of London. The bid was about not making the same mistakes as past host cities, which were left with unused and unloved Olympic venues. This is one of the most deprived parts of London, in fact, one of the most deprived parts of the UK. And the organizers vow that much of that money will go to the legacy. They will clean up the River Lee, they will have affordable homes, they're building new schools. Legacy is the key to these games. This week marks 10 years since that famous opening ceremony. So, how are things looking? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Edward Drummond. Today, the London 2012 legacy. I love the Olympic Games, watching all sorts of sports and being dazzled by the desire to go higher, faster, stronger. I always admired the simple idea of bringing together the best athletes from across the globe to compete. I have memories of games gone by, Linford Christie's gold in Barcelona and disappointment in Atlanta, Britain's track cycling triumphs in Beijing. I couldn't wait for the London Games. As a Londoner, to have the greatest show on earth on my doorstep was going to be special. As well as a small task of inspiring millions into more physical activity, London's bid for 2012 was supposed to transform a forgotten corner of the capital, breathing new life into the local environment and boosting the economy. It also pledged that no venues would be left discarded and gathering dust at huge expense to the taxpayer. I was a 28-year-old back then, a volunteer games maker, and saw a rehearsal of Danny Boyle's opening ceremony as he tried to define a modern Britain for an audience of billions. At the time, I lived in Hackney Wick, within earshot of the roaring crowd inside the stadium. And I'll never forget Super Saturday, possibly the only time I've watched running in the pub with my mates as Mo Farah sprinted the glory. I no longer live by the Olympic Park, but I do use the pool, and I have been to events at the Olympic Stadium in the velodrome. 
But beyond my rose-tinted glasses, how is the game's legacy looking for the people of East London now? Hi, nice to meet you. Hello, Edmund. Thank you so much for coming. That's all right. Uh, I'm quite pleasantly surprised by this environment. Yeah? It's, uh, it's like a new city. Yes. To get an idea of the history of Stratford, the part of East London where the main venues are, I met Mike Brook at the Olympic Park. I'm a senior journalist. I work for Argent Newspapers in East London, which covers both the Newham Recorder and the East London Advertiser. Also the Hackney Gazette, three newspapers that surround the Olympic Village. Mike, you were born in the East End, you grew up in the East End? Born in Mile End, yes, grew up in Whitechapel, went to school in Shoreditchshire, and have thorough breeding in the East End of London. In those days, it was very working class. We're talking about post-war Britain and the recovery. My playground, my play sites were the bomb sites left over from the war. To me, it was quite usual to grow up in the rough and tumble of the East End. Working class, you didn't know anything else. You didn't know any different. The West End was somewhere a long way away that you went to maybe occasionally. You dressed up and you went up west. But the East End, it was where you lived, where you existed. And this area, before the Olympics, it was just a bit run down, a bit shabby. You had industrial wasteland here. You had polluted land alongside the River Leaf. It wasn't very attractive. In fact, most people didn't even know there was a river here. You just ignored it. And when did you first spend any time in Stratford, experience Stratford? Well, I came to work for the old Stratford Express in the late 60s, early 70s, and we had a printing plant in Stratford High Street. Now, Stratford itself, as a town, was quite thriving, but it was surrounded by wasteland. You had a, a market, you had department stores there. The High Street was beginning to look a bit urban, and there were developments beginning. Before the Olympics, here where we are on the Olympic site, there were small businesses, there was a housing community, there were things here. This area was basically known for industry. In fact, this is where the Industrial Revolution more or less began in places like this. For example, there's a factory in Hackney Wick, if you just look uh, just a mile and a half to, in that direction, right by the railway sidings, which developed the very first plastics in the Victorian times. It's areas like this where that sort of entrepreneurship has developed. Do you remember the London 2012 bid? Do you remember the run-up to that, the, the bid going in? You would have been a journalist in the local area covering the site. I remember the campaigning and we used to get lobbyists knocking on our door saying we've got this marvellous idea, we want you to do a story on it and we did many stories. We looked at futuristic plans where this whole area would be turned into a a massive new city, there was going to be uh, water wetlands and there was going to be all sorts of things and it was a bit far-fetched and we didn't think much would come of it. I wanted to find out more about the original plans for the Olympic Park and, as it turns out, one of my colleagues at The Times knows all about them. I'm Jonathan Morrison. I'm an architecture critic. I've been at Times for about 15 years. Before that, I was at the Royal Institute of British Architects, where I was involved in the Olympic bid team. They asked us to produce a series of illustrative drawings for things like a proposed stadium, which helped seal the bid. So you're the perfect person to talk to now when we look at 
10 years on at the site, what it's become? I hope so. I hope I can give some insight into it. To my recollection, legacy was a a big part of the bid. Did that come up in those discussions in 2005? Absolutely. This was going to be the Legacy Olympics. The Legacy was the the big selling point. And there's a good reason for that. I mean, at the time we were projecting a cost of about four billion. And even in a sports mad country like the UK, four billion is quite a lot of money to put on two weeks of athletics. So people wanted to see that there would be some value for that money. Obviously, the cost rose to about 9.3 billion, I think is now the sort of accepted figure. And it was different to other games. I mean, the Beijing Olympics in 2008 were very much sort of China's coming out party. They wanted to make a big statement on the world stage. Sochi, which actually cost the Russians about 50 billion, 51 billion, was a publicity stunt. It was ego massage for Putin. But none of that really applied to London. London was always an international city, so it never really needed to be put on the map in the same way. So what do you get for your nine billion? Well, you want to see certainly some great world-class sporting facilities. But more than that, it was sold as a chance, a once-in-a-generation chance to regenerate a neglected part of London, the East End around Newham, which had been largely overlooked since the Second World War, which was an area of light industry, deprivation, some pretty horrible urban landscaping. And I think that was Ken Livingston's idea. He saw this as a chance to get lots of money to develop a neglected area of London. In those early plans, did you have a sense that these were buildings that would stand the test of time? Definitely from the start, there was an idea that we were, in Britain, supposedly world leaders in architecture and that we could come up with something pretty special. And that was, I think, one of the things that sold it to the International Olympic Committee, along with the idea that it would actually have a legacy in a way that perhaps previous Olympics in Sochi and Beijing and Athens and Atlanta, which had been very much criticised, didn't offer. It was a chance for them to do something new and it was definitely a chance for us to create some world-class buildings. A lot of other Olympics have left these white elephant unused stadia that look all gleaming and shining on the day of or during the games themselves and then 12 months later are just dust bowls and abandoned. Legacy is a, is a very chancy thing. You can get it right, you can get it wrong. Some places have got it wrong. I visited Montreal, which had the Olympics, and they extended their metro system running under the St. Lawrence River and under an island in the middle of the St. Lawrence, which is where the much of the Olympics was staged. And I thought, what well, I'd like to have a visit and, and see what's what. I got out at the station, modern station, underground, with a long escalator, but nobody on it. There was nobody actually getting on or off at that stage. And at that station, I got to the surface and I looked around. It was like an empty fairground in winter. And it was a shame there were still some of the Olympics facilities there, but, but nobody was using it. And I thought that's a great shame. And I thought that could happen in London. We could end up with a white elephant. When you heard these ideas of legacy in the bid before the games, what did you make of them? You do have scepticism. And as a working journalist, I thought, well, these schemes are nice, but they're only on a drawing board at the moment. Seeing is believing the world will come here and we'll have a great time. We'll, we will host the Games for two or three weeks and then the Paralympic Games and everything will be fine. But afterwards, what happens then? Will people just go away and what will happen to these buildings? I was a little sceptic. We all were sceptic that, you know, we might be left with white elephants. But in all that time, the optimists saying, well, you know, we've got this already. If they get it right, it will work. 
one of the things that the London Olympics did very well, actually, was use places that were already there, so horse guards, to provide an iconic backdrop for things like the volleyball. Greenwich, where I live, they used the park for the horse riding, for the horse uh, jumping. The uh, cross-country. Cross-country, that's right. Yeah. Other places, Lords was used for archery, and I think they did that brilliantly. I mean, they, they took these already very famous venues and repurposed them briefly for the games, created very memorable occasions for everyone. And actually, if you look at what we've been left with, they are really just four main sort of arenas. You've got the velodrome, the copper box, the Olympic Stadium, and the Aquatic Centre. And for an Olympics, that's actually quite surprising. I mean, you, you expect lots and lots of different venues, and that's one of the problems with places like Athens, where they, they had all these mini stadiums for specific events that were never used again. You mentioned the four stadiums that have been left, and I was at the Olympic Park recently. They're there sitting in very nice new parkland, but there's still a lot of building work going on there. We're looking to try and consider a legacy a decade on, but actually you can't really say they finished with the site yet. It takes a long time to build a whole new sort of quarter of the city. 10 years is not really that long a time in construction. Most skyscrapers will take about eight years maybe to build and we've had two years of pandemic as well. Even with a very quick turnaround, you'd be quite surprised to see everything completed within 10 years. I think they've done something like 12,000 of 33,000 homes. I mean, it's an ongoing process, but within the sort of the 10 years that we've had, we can see that the Olympic venues have aged pretty well, I think. And if we're looking at the site now, the things that occupy it, is there a way to just kind of divide them up in a way to kind of consider them in different ways? I'd sort of say that you've got um, lots of different things going on, but you've basically got sporting venues, which were completed in time for the Olympics, very obviously. You've got a cultural side, which is the Olympicopolis project to develop a series of, again, supposedly world-class museums and venues by the Olympic Stadium, namely involving Sadler's Wells and the V&A and a BBC studio. And then you've got the housing side as well, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about, but is not going quite so well. And of those four venues, the stadium's possibly the most controversial now it's being used for football? The stadium has effectively almost been handed to West Ham for a kind of peppercorn rent of about 2.5 million a year, and it cost about 750 million to build and then convert to football. So you could argue that West Ham are being very heavily subsidised to use the stadium. But having said that, it has been a success. You do say they've been successful, but they have come at an incredible cost. I mean, they have. that pool is amazing, but... Did you need a Zaha Hadid, I don't know how many millions, wave-shaped thing to host a pool in the area? Could there have been a, a cheaper way of doing it? I mean, there's, there's probably always a cheaper way of doing it. I mean, first, first of all, you could argue that a capital city needs world-class sporting venues, and they are definitely being used. With the pool, the aquatic centre, one, there's always room for a Zaha Hadid design building because they're very good, and it's a beautiful building. It also was a very adaptable building, so it had two wings, sort of attached to it for the purpose of the Olympics, which enabled it to take 17,500 spectators. When they were removed, it's now down to about 2,000. So actually, it, of all the buildings, that's probably the one that's been most adaptable. And it's a very beautiful pool. And so then you've got the cultural side. That's a number of different museums and other things being built. There's some universities on the site, I think. There's going to be a university campus. There's a BBC studio, V&A East is probably the sort of the landmark development in a fairly interesting building by award-winning architects. Unfortunately, the Smithsonian, which was due to be heavily involved, has pulled out. And I think that has kind of 
relegated it to second tier status. I mean, I think sort of traveling shows from the Smithsonian were probably quite a good reason to go and travel all the way east to have a look at it. I'm not sure that anything that they plan to offer at the V&A is, is going to have quite the same draw. What is the idea behind, a, a, I guess, a cultural hub there in Stratford? Is it just thought that there's some space, we could put some things in there? Or is it, well, this part of London needs a kind of a cultural nexus? I think very much it was felt that there should be a cultural element to it as part of the legacy. And that this would provide, as you say, a nexus for an area of town which is not normally associated with cultural activity. It's better than nothing. It's probably quite good. Would people rather go to the V&A East and see a bit of the demolished Robin Hood's gardens by Peter and Alison Smithson? This was a housing estate that was right next door and was actually demolished, so now you can go and see a bit of a wall. Is that enough to draw people all the way out from central London? I don't think so. But maybe to draw people in from the surrounding boroughs, maybe Essex? Yeah, maybe. In a moment, we'll look at how the housing legacy is held up. But first... Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerins, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the main criticisms of the legacy of the Olympic site has been of the lack of affordable housing included in the new homes built around the park. And for Jonathan, involved in those early plans, the aesthetics leave a lot to be desired. 
so far the indications are that it's not been terribly successful. As I said, you can't build 40,000 homes that quickly. We've probably got maybe a third of those so far. But what's being built is not very attractive and is arguably not beneficial to the area. So you're getting a lot of modern tower blocks of the sort you see all over London. They're built to the lowest possible price, clad in cheap cladding. Quite a lot of them are sold off plan to foreign investors. Some of them even have slogans like, you know, invest to rent, i.e. you can buy it now and then rent it out to young professionals for forevermore. And there's not a lot of affordable housing, certainly not affordable in any way that we would recognise saying something's affordable just because it's 80% of market value is is not really that useful for people in quite a deprived local area. And it's, yeah, it's just incoherent. Quite a lot of it is very ugly, and I don't think it's going to age very well. Walking around, as anonymous as some of it seemed, there was a number of blocks that are only maybe four or five floors high, there's quite wide streets, trees and things like that. It seemed relatively pleasant. Some areas are better than others. The original plan was much more astute. It envisaged areas of quite high density, but in courtyard blocks, a bit like Barcelona, which has one of the highest housing densities in Europe, but also is a very nice city. So it is possible to do both at the same time. Instead, we're building these tower blocks, which take up a lot of space because they need a lot of area around them. And it's it just seems to me that we're repeating sort of mistakes of the 60s and 70s. It's almost baffling considering that there was one oversight organisation, which was the London Legacy Development Corporation, and you just would have kind of thought that they would have planned better. The former Olympian Seb Coe chaired the organising committee for London's Games and recently spoke to my colleague Rosamond Irwin for the Sunday Times. You can hear her making notes during this extract from her interview. Coe was unequivocal that the Games had left a legacy in Stratford. I was in the Olympic Park just a few days ago. I'm Chancellor at Loughborough University. Yeah. I went to visit our London campus. Actually, quite a good, strong legacy. Sits alongside BT Sport, Sadler's Wells, the yeah. University of London, the Victoria and Albert. Would any of those institutions have been up there? on that parcel of land in 2005. It would be crazy of me to say that everything that we've planned has worked. But I remember what that parcel of land looked like. You know, I was up there the other day. The park is a thriving community. Those venues are used. They're not white elephants. There are families picnicking there. There are school visits. There were school projects. It was bustling. Mm. We did in seven years what politicians would probably have failed to have done in 50 years. And it wouldn't have happened had we not had a games there. I think this is the thing. There were plans for redeveloping the area, but they would probably have taken 50 years if it hadn't been for the Olympics. And I think this is, is their major selling point. A lot of the redevelopment of that area would not have happened and certainly would not have happened at the pace it's happening. Whether it's been redeveloped as well as it could have been is a different issue. Looking back on it over the, the past 10 years since the Olympics and 15 years since we won the contract. A lot has gone into this and it has changed the place. It has shifted London's centre further east. A lot of money has gone into it, but it's going to take time because in my day, 
nobody thought of this area as a place to go and visit. And just five minutes walk from where we are now, we're on the bridge over the uh, River Lee, just five minutes walk away, you've got streets which look like boulevards. You would think you're in a continental city. I can't believe it. I was born around here, but suddenly it seems like the world has come to where I live. I never had pride in living in the East End of London at one time. It was a working-class district. The cultural movement was to move on or move out, to go somewhere else, anywhere but the East End. I don't think that's so these days. Just finally, it's 10 years since that opening ceremony and the site's not quite finished. Things are there or thereabouts. I mean, is 10 years too early for a legacy or to consider a legacy? It's long enough that you can see how things are developing. But I think we tend to assess architecture in quite big blocks. We're only really now sort of considering the legacy of brutalism, and that's about 50 years on. That will be the real test, what it looks like in 50 years' time. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Edward Drummond, and my guests, Times architecture correspondent Jonathan Morrison and Arch and Press senior reporter Mike Brook. You can read more coverage of the anniversary of London 2012, including the interview with Seb Coe, at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer was me, Edward Drummond. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you like what you've just heard, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It'll help others find us. See you again soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.